Out for Show. Thanks so much for listening. On this week, we have a great episode. We interviewed Ben Jealous, former head of the NAACP, former Bernie Sanders surrogate, who wound up then endorsing Hillary Clinton, much like Bernie Sanders did. He's also on the board of directors of Our Revolution, progressive political organization that is the inheritor of Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. Now, just to explain, this interview we are now releasing, we interviewed him 6 p.m. on November 8th. That is the night of the elections. And what you're going to see is Ben Jealous predict why Donald Trump won. And it's interesting because, honestly, I have to say that when Gabe Pacheco, my co-host, and I interviewed Ben Jealous, I really expected it to be a kind of get out to vote, vote against Trump. And I almost didn't even ask him until the very end any predictions about tonight. That's where we start the interview, then we go back in time, but you'll see why I moved that earlier. It's a pretty exciting part of it. But it is kind of funny that we almost didn't talk about this because I thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win, and I thought the question that we had to grapple with was how we were going to hold her feet to the fire. Okay, please check out The Katie Halper Show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. Again, patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. Support our show. If you do, you'll get extra bonus goodies. Goodies that are coming down the pike so soon are interviews with Carl Bayer, interviews with, with Emmett Renson, interview with Leslie Lee, the creator of Bernie Made Me White, Eric Andiola, Bernie Sanders' former Latina press secretary, an interview we did with Freddie DeBoer, Juan Mejia, and Amber Elite Frost, an interview we did with Liza Featherstone and Doug Henwood. We are talking with Ben Jealous. We're right. so happy. Guys, we're so happy. We've been trying to do this for a while. No, since... you've been awesome, Katie. Oh. And I really, you know, you're so charming. I just wanted to wait till I could do it in person. Thank you. That's, we'll, we'll, we'll pretend that that's what happened. So, okay, I'm going to do a proper intro. The youngest, not only was he the president of the NAACP, but the youngest president. At 35. At 35. Well, we're not going to say the years because a lady never tells and neither does a gentleman. So <laughs> it was it could have been last year. Yeah. And you're now a professor at Princeton and the, yeah, Woodrow, at the Wilson, Woodrow, Wilson Woodrow Wilson School. Wilson School. Nice. Yes. You were a Bernie surrogate. Yep. And you are on the board of Our Revolution. I am. And you're with Capor Capital. Capital. And Ben is a Rhodes Scholar, too. And you started out doing labor organizing. We started out doing uh, neighborhood organizing, trying to save a hospital in New York City. St. Luke's Women's Hospital. We kept it open for six more years, but it eventually got moved down to uh, Roosevelt. And obviously, if you live north of 96 uh, or south of 96, is a big deal in Manhattan. Right. So moving it downtown, even with just a few miles, was you may have well has moved it to Mars. So right. it was, you know, it was a fight to preserve uh, neonatal intensive care services for the women of West Harlem. That's all I got. What do you think about tonight? Right now, at this moment, fear, fear the possibility that Trump wins. Okay. You know, the I don't think Hillary will pull off many surprise states. I could be wrong. I'd be happy to be wrong. Trump could pull off some surprise states. We have, in our country, unlikely voters in every racial group. We tend to talk about black and Latino unlikely voters. That have been mm -hmm. a focus ever since the passage of the Voting Rights Act. But there's a much larger group of unlikely voters, uh, which is lower income, uh, less educated whites. Two groups there that have played a notable role, and there's some overlap in uh, American elections in recent decades. One is those who simply just are disconnected from politics. And man, if you're a celebrity 
and you feel like you even resemble their values, but they connect with you on the big or small screen, they'll vote for you. I mean, that explains Jesse the Body Ventura, the Terminator, both becoming governor. It explains Gopher from the Love Boat becoming a congressman from Iowa. <laughs> but uh, the other, Fred Grandy, um, you know, Cooter was the say, a progressive dem on the Dukes of Hazzard, um, the tow truck driver. But the uh, but Sonny then, Bono, right? You know, my gosh. Um, let's not even go there. And so. The uh, he always creeped me out as a kid. Yeah. You now watching the Sunday Share show, but anyways, the other one though are extremist causes. If you remember Dinkins' somewhat surprised defeat by Giuliani, like what was like the special sort of like 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 battery in that you know equation, the source of superpower for Giuliani, the non-binding referendum on Staten Island that they secede from New York City. Which brought out, like, I mean, you can imagine, right? You can, you, you can run that today, oh my you know? God. Um, you know, Trump will get the, what I call cicada voters. We're talking about more every 20 years than every 10. Once you vote less than once every 10 years, you're out of all the databases. Um, so we don't track you. We, you won't get a call about polling. Um, uh, and there's, again, both groups, the ones who go for celebrity conservatives and the ones who go for extremist causes. He has made his campaign an extremist cause. And of course, the KKK helped that by endorsing it. So you're saying it's less, it's more likely than we think. Oh, my God. More possible than yes, we think. Yes, I, th I think the only uh, candidate that could have legions of voters uh, who are not showing up in poll modeling is Trump. And uh, if you want some evidence that that could be the case, consider the the weird conversation we've had about black early voters in the South over the last couple of weeks. First it was, oh my God, the black vote is down. Like, wait, 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 wait. The numbers are up. The percentage is down. Why is the percentage down if the numbers are up? Because some other number has gone up faster. And that was the white vote down South. Well, it could be all the white women coming out to vote for Hillary. Probably not. Can you tell us a bit about our revolution and what you guys are doing and, and why you started what you started? Yeah, look, we're focused on 2018 and 2020 and beyond. Um, you know, not so much 2016, to be honest. I mean, uh, our folks are out there. They're working. They've, done, you know, they've knocked on 100,000 doors. They've made a million calls. Uh, we've raised millions of dollars for progressive candidates. People like Peter Jacob over in New Jersey has an incredibly progressive candidate who might just upset a Republican, a very conservative, toxic Republican. This is a 31-year-old South Asian-American immigrant social worker uh, who has run a campaign that until two weeks ago had only raised $100,000 and pulled even in the polls with a Trump-supporting Republican who had raised a million dollars. And so we've been helping to, to empower campaigns like that uh, across the country. But what we're really looking at are the 15,000 Bernie supporters have said that they want to run for office in the next four years, and we want to support them. And we're looking at issues like right now, today in three states, you can vote to abolish the, the death penalty in California. We want to make sure that, that those pass. We want to push for public referenda. And we're preparing you know, federally for a battle with whoever becomes president tonight. Whoever becomes president, we're going to have to fight to pass the $15 minimum wage. We're going to have to fight to make sure that no more trade deals, bad trade deals get passed. You mean TP, TPP? Well, TPP and TPP Lite and TPP, et cetera, and TPP et al. And, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, it was not, that's not the end of the bad alphabet. And, um, you know, and, and we're going to have to fight to shift from war to peace. And there's going to be, you know, so we're getting ready for that, too. We've got um, a lot of Bernie activists who, through the 
the movement found a community. I love the way you said we're going to have to fight with whoever is president. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's like straight up. And they know that. And we've told them that. I mean, this is the thing, right? When I was trained as an organizer in Harlem, we were told straight up, you know, first time I can remember being involved in an election, like, don't get it twisted. We are not electing somebody to make change happen. We are electing somebody to make it easier for our movement to make change happen. We will never cede our power to a politician. We simply will pick the politician that we think is will be the best dance partner. Oh, yeah. You know, and the reality is like, yeah, you know, Hillary may only support 70% of what we believe in. But Donald On Trump, a good day. Yeah, okay. Maybe six, it's, let's say 60. Let's say it's 60. To well, she's at 60. Donald Trump's at six. Right. And yeah, On you know, like where I'm from, six is an F and a 60 is a D. But man, there's a lot of space between six and 60. And, and if somebody shows up at 60, well, you can push them to 70. And you might shove them to 75. And that's what you do as a movement. I mean, my hero in New York City politics is a man who never became congressman because... Um, uh, oh, because uh, Congressman Powell, Adam Clayton Powell, beat oh. him to the punch. You know, the, the district up in Harlem, the Bronx, was created for A. Philip Randolph, the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And Adam Clayton Powell was supposed to give the benediction at his coronation. And oh. Adam Clayton Powell shows up to give the benediction. You speak first. Oh, my gosh. And he announced he was running for Congress. I didn't and know that. And statesmen, senior statesmen of black politics across the entire country that – uh, Adam, that uh, A. Philip Randolph was, he just said basically, if the young guy wants to do it, let him do it. Wow. But A. Philip Randolph was in conversations literally with FDR, JFK, and LBJ, where every time it would come down to the same thing with the president, say, look, you know, I agree with you. Go make me do it. But make me do it. Right. And that's something that you bring up that's interesting because on my social media feed and the way that I hear a lot of people of my generation talking, it's this sort of like um, worship of the person in power as though like Obama. They're like, he's so cool. Or like this idea that um, now we've elected somebody and they're going to save us. And uh, without and I've always had this idea that uh, I don't respect the people in power like blindly. We're always in an adversarial relationship with the people who have uh, access. Yes. And uh, it's up to everyone to pull them as much as possible to get the resources and the attention. Well, that's just it. But it's also like, you know, what do you do for a friend who's in a very tough place, right? You support them. It means that, that you have their back. Why do you have their back? Because somebody else is shoving them from the front. And, you know, and when you see uh, a politician who was a hero of yours fall down, it's typically because somebody was shoving them harder than from the front than you were holding them up from the back. Mm. And, you know, that was a mistake that we made with Obama. Big time. Obama came in much more progressive than he will go out. Um, and, and I know him, I think, better than most citizens, not as well as, say, Al Sharpton or some, some other folks. Um, the president's heart's in the right place. But literally, we, like, mistook him for Moses for a long time. You know, we were celebrating the streets. The conservatives were planning in the suites. The, cur- the conservatives in uh, this country are very much, many ways rooted in the South and the old Confederacy. And what the old Confederacy and their, and, and, and their descendants have been very good at is losing wars and winning the peace. You know, so we win the war that is a presidential election and they win the peace that is the legislative space in between. Um, and we have to get very we have to get much better at both winning the war and the peace. Um, 
And so why did, well, I have two questions. One is how much is Obama's transformation just a function of being the president? Um, I mean, the left was asleep at the wheel, I would say, for a lot of his presidency. But how inevitable is some kind of transformation towards the, the right? And also, why is he so hell-bent on TPP? The hell-bent on TPP, I don't want to um, conjecture about because it just takes me to a bad place. Right. Okay. Um, is it, you know, but it's you know, somewhere, something And I that... truly don't know why. Okay. What I would say is, regardless, we have to fight it. Sure. That there's no, there's really not a good reason. Um, I think it may be, I mean, the best you could say is that he may be more oriented to the new economy of the Silicon Valley rather than the old economies of like Ohio. And in the Silicon Valley, most people are pro TPP because they want, it facilitates their domination of Asia through technology. Um, in Ohio, people say, wait a second, like we feed our families off the auto parts industry here. It's not just whether you work at the factory, it's whether you, you know, work at the restaurant that the factory workers eat at. It's that whole ecology. And the TPP will send the American auto parts industry the way of the American textile industry, which has all but disappeared. The so, way of the dodo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we I ran into you at the DNC yep. in Philadelphia and was so excited to have you on because as a big nerd who watched, as you know, the Democratic platform committee meetings, I think you like boiled it down perfectly, the difference between progressive Democrats yeah. and uh, DNC Democrats. So, and yeah. and what is it like for you? You know, you were a Sanders surrogate and you, you know, understandably made the argument about why he's a better was a better candidate than Hillary Clinton would be a better nominee than she is. So what's it like to then transition? Um, and I don't see it as a contradiction. I think I'm it's, doing but, what Bernie did. Bernie. Yeah. So what is it? What is it like, though? There hasn't been a whole lot of love from the Clinton campaign. You know, it's not like. Well, near a Tandon. Yeah. Near is an old friend with a with a with a uh, who's a bit catty. But yeah. the um, and she was disappointed. You know, she was she was she was grieving having a good friend of her go the other way. Right. I, I forgive Nira. I mean, Lord knows I've said worse things. Right. That's yeah. We're, <laughs> we're referring to the WikiLeaks. In Did which she it text you out. a eulogy? <laughs> no, I mean, she actually you, you know what? I will give her this. And this is, I think, an important lesson for all of us. I found out about the WikiLeaks from Nira. She called me before anybody else did. And apologize. There's a lot of folks who were like hit under the covers right. for like a week, bumped into you sheepishly at Starbucks and like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Yeah. But she was she was forthright about it. That's fine. Politics, you know, is uh, I come from the school that politics is is war without bloodshed. And people in war do really nasty things. I grew up in a place where, you know, sticks and stones will break my, my bones was our mantra. Like words I'm not worried about. But what I am worried about is progressives who mistake this, you know, mistake politicians for saviors, mistake elections for either popularity contests or purity tests. Politics is muddy. The only way that we make progress is if we're smart and we fight and we get right down on the field with everybody else. We have an opportunity as progressives to transform this country radically. The biggest opportunities are probably in the South where things look most dire. But the reality is that right now progressives have – uh, on paper, majorities in Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, uh, Maryland, and Florida, the entire southern eastern seaboard. In Maryland, uh, we're, we're playing with it. People are registered. We, just, we, we have other internal things to, to, to sort out. In South Carolina, North Carolina, 
uh, Virginia, Georgia, what gets you to the starting line is massive voter registration drives. And that's, I think, one of the places that we have to go. And I'll just give you an example. The politics of the black community are fairly progressive. Uh, there are a lot of traditions and, you know, relationships that can make them kind of harder to mobilize, as we saw in the Bernie campaign, like, or pivot quickly. But the politics are there. Did you see the movie The New Black? No. About the um, the same-sex marriage in Baltimore? No, um, but it's... Yeah, it's, well, it's, I'll tell you about it after. Yeah, I would love to see it because I was one of the architects of that campaign. Oh, wow. So yeah, I would yeah, love to Yeah, Richen made it. it okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, the, um, i tell you that story, but... Oh, great. Well, let's just talk about yeah. this story for a second. It's, okay, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. So it was Chad Griffin's first day at the Human Rights Campaign. And that year we had marriage equality on the ballot in four states. And I had come in... Uh, the NAACP just a few weeks before the Prop 8 vote in California for which the black community was shamelessly scapegoated because the margin Prop 8, uh, you know, that the wrong side won by was larger than the entire percentage of the black vote in California. So you could, you know, and obviously wow. not 100% of us vote for anything. So you couldn't explain it with us. But they tried to do that. Even the New York Times. I literally had to have a New York Times reporter two years later take out a calculator to explain to her why she needed to get off this old... I mean, I was like, really? It's like, you work for the... Lordy. Yeah. You know, well, yeah. <laughs> National Enquirer and expect this. Right. New York Times, I expect you to be able to add. But the, um, uh, the leaders of the marriage equality movement who deserve endless credit for their foresight and their courage, uh, had given up on Maryland because it has such a large black population and because we were polling at like 51% for marriage equality. And what they said was, look, the far right wing will come in in the last two weeks, funded by the Catholic Church, the Mormon Church, et cetera, and they will run these negative ads and they'll push down support in nine points. So it's not worth investing if we're only up by one point. But I was looking at a trend line where support was gaining very, very quickly. And so Chad Griffin's first year at HRC asked to meet with me, the president of the NAACP. So I came over to D.C. and we had a great, wonderful conversation about all the things we would do and transgender equality and all the places we would work. And I just said to Chad, I said, well, what about Maryland? He's like, he's like, well, what do you think? I said, well, I think it's wide open territory, man. I said, I was like, everybody else has picked, you know, Washington State. I think it was Minnesota, Maine. I said, but everybody's bugging out of Maryland. And I live there, brother, and we can win it. And he said, well, let's go do it. So I hired a couple of organizers. One of them was a young leader in Baltimore named Fagan Harris. He was at the time was a Rhodes Scholar, a working class kid from Baltimore, going over to Oxford. He stayed home for a trimester, uh, was our lead organizer. The Prince George County NAACP, the, um, uh, the NAACP in Baltimore and other places were out in full effect. And we won. We became the first state south of the Mason-Dixon to, on the ballot, win marriage equality. We also, though, developed arguments that, to this day, boost marriage equality's support in the black community by 10 points. So if right now I'm proud to say, like in states like Georgia, if you poll marriage equality, it polls at like 51% in the black community. But if you say, do you support marriage equality if, and you basically restate the protections of the First Amendment for all churches, it jumps to like 62%. And so that's how we, we actually wrote the law on the ballot in Maryland was so that we just simply regurgitated the First Amendment. It wasn't, you know, saying anything people shouldn't, shouldn't already know. But just that little extra assurance that your, you know, church, your religion, your synagogue, your temple is still allowed to follow its own, you know, culture. Um, it jumps 10 points. Wow. 
Or yeah. it's an, it's interpretation of its own culture, right? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's you know, anyways, but it's um, and that's the so it's great. So now, literally, the black community has super majorities in support of marriage equality, even in the deep south. Wow, I the I think the first time I heard about you was when I saw you on. TV, I think on Democracy Now, when, when um, Troy Davis. Yeah, I worked that case for 15 years. So Troy Davis was was ultimately killed. You, you can do a better job. Yeah, Troy was murdered. Troy um, was on death row in Georgia for 15, 16 years, um, maybe actually a little, a little longer. He uh, had been convicted of killing Officer McPhail in Savannah, uh, I believe, in the early, mid-1990s. And... Um, he was convicted by seven eyewitnesses. I met his sister a year or two after he was convicted at an anti-death penalty conference with her son, who was wearing uh, underoos. He was wearing uh, Captain America underoos. And she came out to me that day, and she said, you know, my brother's innocent. And, you know, there were a dozen other families at the conference saying, our son, our brother's innocent. So by that point of the day, I said to her what I said to every other family, which is, look, Bring us the evidence and we'll fight like hell. Fifteen years later, 14 maybe years later, I was president of the NAACP. I get a call from the president of the Georgia NAACP saying, we have a young man on death row here. I'm convinced he's innocent. I want you to get down here and meet with him. I go in there and meet with Troy Davis, and I'm moved. I'm moved by his clarity, his conviction. I've been told that a number of the eyewitnesses had recanted. We prayed together. He was eloquent. Prison guards were crying or wiping tears because they were convinced of his innocence too. And I walk out, and there's a woman standing next to her 18-year-old son uh, by a car, and she calls him, Mr. Jealous? I say, yeah, I walk over. And she says, hi, I'm, I'm Troy's sister, Martina, and this is my son. And she hands me a photograph of me standing next to a little boy in underoos. <laughs> and she says, do you remember this day? And I said, I do. She said, do you remember the promise you made to me? I said, I'm sure I said, bring me the evidence and I'll fight like hell. She said, here's the evidence. And she opened her trunk. And seven, uh, excuse me, he was convicted by nine eyewitnesses. Seven of the nine had recanted that all that was there. There were two left. One was the primary alternative suspect, a guy uh, who literally has a rap sheet like as long as this room. Uh, the other was somebody who said that on a moonless night, 100 or more yards away, under a tree, they could recognize a dark-skinned black person beyond a shadow of a doubt. And the guy who didn't recant, the primary suspect, he was the first one to bring, to suggest it was Troy yeah, Davis, so yes. right? No, it's, it's really, I mean, he's the guy who did it. And, right. in fact, his, his own nephew will tell you his story of two nephews. Troy Davis's nephew is really more like his son. He visited him every week of his life on death row until his mom got so sick from this is Martina from the MS. ravages of uh, no of uh, chemotherapy oh. that they could only go every two weeks, and uh, and then you know Red whatever his last name is the uh, primary alternative suspect, uh, his nephew said nope I heard my uncle say that he did it, um, and so uh, you know we we fought like hell and at a certain point I was back at that prison I was confronting the warden. And the warden had been switched. The previous warden thought that Troy was innocent and that the execution could be halted. And so the governor switched that warden out and put in a warden who was committed to kill him under any, uh, you know, basically was shot himself. And I was trying to get 
60 minutes in there. And the warden said, I'm not letting them in. I said, why? He said, because there's, there's too much doubt. I said, well, there's too much doubt for a reason, warden. I said, I'm, I'm watching. Every time I come here, at least one of your prison guards starts crying in the middle of my conversations with Troy. It's like you're about to ask these people to hold the left leg, the right leg, the left arm, the right arm, the head while they administer, you know, poison to execute a man that they believe is innocent. I said, you know, we have an alternative. Which he said, well, well, what's that? I said, we could let the truth out, get the wrong man out, get the right guy in here. And I said, I know, oh, by the way, I won't be leading any more protests outside your prison because, you know, there's 4,000 other people in death row who will be about much more compelling cases, many of them, than a guy who actually did it. And, um, right. And he said, well, he said, I don't think you understand one thing. I said, what's that? He said, I was on law enforcement in Savannah the night that Officer McPhail was killed. Troy Davis will hang for this. And, um, and so uh, that case, we then went back and we said, this, this is why it's important for activists to understand history. If you talk, we were talking earlier about kind of family histories in the movement. If you talk to, say, Black folks in the far left or lifelong activists and white folks in the far left who say in their 70s and 80s, what really moved them? What case really moved them in the early 1950s? You know, black folks are always like, it's like Brown versus Board. But, with, you know, if you're, if you're talking about the death penalty criminal justice, you say what moved them. White activists eventually will get a little around to the case of a guy named Carl Chessman. Carl Chessman used books and traditional media to build global support for his innocence from death row. He's why we now have these laws that kind of limit your ability to publish and stuff from death, you know, from prison. Uh, one of the reasons. And literally, like in Pasadena, California, the junior high school was told by somebody who was a junior high school student then, on the moment of his execution, had a moment of silence that lasted for how long they thought the execution would take. Um, and all the young people stopped because they were all reading Life magazine. They were reading his books. So he was, in many ways, like JFK, the first of his kind, in this case, first clemency case, opposed to first candidacy, to master the use of traditional media, television, magazines. Well, in the era of social media, we just come out of the Barack Obama campaign, we're going to the Troy Davis campaign. We said, we, we don't have time for that. <laughs> and they won't even let us let, you know, 60 minutes in. So we have to make Troy Davis's clemency campaign the most effective use of social media of any clemency campaign we've ever seen. And NAACP and Amnesty collectively, our communications departments, created the hashtag too much doubt. That hashtag was the most tweeted social issue, the second most tweeted hashtag in the world in 2011. Um, and this is why we'll always believe in the power of Twitter at the end of the day to raise consciousness. Now, now you may say, well, well, what got more tweeted? Uh, hashtag Beyonce is pregnant, but you know, but that's a high bar. So yeah, it's a high bar. It's a really that, high yeah. bar, right? And so the here's the 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 interesting thing, guys. Um, when Troy was executed, Gallup sends a poll into the field. Comes back, we have says public support for the death penalty has fallen to the lowest point since when it, when it was momentarily, admittedly, abolished in 1972. And they actually credit, among like three factors, the impact of the Too Much Doubt Twitter campaign to raise people's consciousness, make them realize that Kim Kardashian is concerned, and the former head of the FBI under George W. Right. Bush is concerned. And Barr, Bob Barr, is it Bill Barr? Bob yeah, Barr? yeah, Bob Barr, you know, was concerned. Mike Huckabee helped with that campaign, made calls wow. to, to the governor. 
And um, I don't think I've ever said that publicly before, but there were a lot of folks who were. And so um, what that meant was we were able to go into Maryland, again, first day south of the Mason-Dixon, and abolish the, the death penalty year. We were able to go to Connecticut, where socialite had been murdered in a horrific uh, killing. And typically that means you can't discuss the death penalty and abolish the death penalty that year. You know, and so, you know, that's the way. But you have to, for our, our young activists, you've got to take your power on Twitter and add it up to an actual strategy on the ground to push legislation, to push candidates. It can't just be about consciousness raising, but it, you also can't succeed without consciousness raising. You connect the two and you change the world quickly. Mm. So so you need a, you need a good slogan and you need spreadsheets. Yes. And you need a strategy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't. So there, the three S's: slogan, slogan strategy. spreadsheet, strategy. strategy. We're patenting that. <laughs> yeah, you heard it here first, guys. Um, well, yeah, that was. I don't. Was it hard for you? I know you you have to run, but yeah. just how were you able to like get out of bed after he was executed? Look, on his anniversary, I still have I still have trouble getting out of bed. Um, part of it was that. On death row, Troy told me that I was now responsible for his nephew. Oh. And his nephew lost his grandmother who had helped raise him six months before Troy's execution, his mother two months after Troy's execution, um, and his aunts have their hands full. Uh, and so he lost the three adults who were most focused on raising him, and he was all that was between his junior and senior year of high school. I got a big award that year from the Puffin Foundation through the Nation magazine. I gave basically half of it to uh, his education at Morehouse College, and I'm very involved with him every week, helping him get through Morehouse and get on to his career. And, you know, that's why we get out of bed, right, is we have young people whose lives we're responsible for, sometimes specifically, sometimes collectively, um, and you fight for them. Wow. Yeah, and or, I mean, that's like extremely personal, right, and kind of a visceral thing, but also with the hashtag being successful, even though he oh, was yeah. murdered. That's another well, thing, Troy, right? That... Troy, Troy gave us our mandate. I, mean, I re remember the day I sat at a table like this, you know, simple table, the death row, and I went through Troy. This is how all everything we're going to do to try to save your life. And he said, Ben, that's great. Please try to save my life. He said, I understand this is Georgia. No matter what you do, it may not work. He said, but no matter what you do, what you must guarantee me is that you will fight to destroy the machinery of death until it's dismantled. And he said, and in order to do that, I just asked you to do one thing. I said, what's that? He said, make sure they, under, they know my name. Make sure they understand what's happening to me so they can't do this to anyone else. And that's what really drove us to be so focused on a social media campaign when we were all terrified that our friend was about to be murdered. Right. Yeah. And I remember there was that one, someone said for a second, like they were there was a rumor that just spread through the crowd, I think, that he got a stay. Because he had had so many stays before, and the Supreme Court was vacillating. And here's the thing, you know, in all of our kind of quick-to-point figures, many, very few people have actually put together the dots and said, actually, it was three black men from Georgia, including two from Savannah, that ultimately killed Troy Davis. It was the black DA in Savannah who had been elected with the support of the civil rights community who was too cowardly to reopen the investigation. It was the black chairman of the uh, Board of Pardons of Paroles who flipped his vote. He was voted to stay for Troy before he flipped it. Why? Because he had said to us, look, you can't get a majority unless you can get one of the white members. And then we delivered one of the white members. And then he flipped and voted against us. And then it was 
uh, Clarence Thomas, who grew up in Savannah, Georgia, and who actually said, let me take the case and thought about it for an hour. I was like, ah, kill him. And so that was one of the things, I think, as a black leader of an organization that's rooted in the black community, that was so just deflating. Did it, it's because they had too much skin in the game? What was the, I mean, you look I at that. I don't know. I can never explain Clarence Thomas yeah. to my own satisfaction. Because Clarence Thomas was being Clarence Thomas. Yeah. Because the general who uh, was the black general, was the chair of the Board of Pardons Paroles, was, was, was an effing coward. And because the uh, DEA was scared because of his own political difficulties. None of them had the gratitude, ultimately, for people like Troy Davis's mother, who had been a frontline civil rights activist in the 50s and 60s in Savannah, and who basically, whose courage, along with millions of other people, had benefited all of them directly. Um, and that's that's the just the the tragic truth. But again, young people combining consciousness raising slogans, as you would say, uh, with strategy transformed. Uh, you know, really, the whole debate on the death penalty because now six six more states and we'll be in the Supreme Court abolishing it in the entire country. That's great. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Uh, I have so many more questions for you. Well, I'll but, come back. Yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. come back. You've been, I'll come back. Wait, when no, you're this in New is York fun. Next. Yeah, no. you can bring the two of us to like a bar mitzvah. We can have everybody try to figure out. Oh yeah, the you know which charades. which Jewish yeah, family exactly. we're we're a part of. Yeah, yeah. right. Because I I like sometimes people think I'm Latin and he's Jewish. And no, I mean like, like always, we can just go like an eating tour of New York City. And they will just assume, like, wherever we are, if exactly. we're in, like, Jackson just... Heights, we'll be Colombian. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, totally, yeah. And, and by the revolution. way, if you're thinking about getting a master's of public administration or a master's of oh, public yeah. policy, at Princeton University, the Woodrow Wilson School, it's free. What? Yeah, it's totally free. Gabe, let's go. I'm telling you, room and board, let's stipend. Like, literally, they, buy, they, they like, buy your beer every week. It's, it's, Can you imagine? It's totally free. Can you imagine Katie and Gabe go to go to the Woodrow Wilson School? It's like an Getting 80s that movie. Masters. Yeah. yeah back well, to no, school. I mean, it's right. <laughs> and, 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 and the MPP is one year. It's totally paid for. So, you know. We're doing it. We're doing it. Yeah. I'll do and, it. and I'll tell you policy. what. If you come do it, I'll do your show every week. Now we got to do it. All right, you guys, this is the, the birth of uh, the beginning of a beautiful academic and uh, cultural radio media relationship. So, there you go. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so Appreciate much. Appreciate you guys. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot.